and welcome to the Super Jump Podcast. We were gone for a little bit longer than usual, but we are back, baby. I'm Mitchell Wolf, your host, and I'm here, as always, with Editor-in-Chief of Super Jump, James Burns. Hey, James, how's it going? Pretty good. I'm still alive, so I'm going well. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. It, yeah, just to clarify for everybody listening, it was it was my fault that we didn't do our normally scheduled recording last time. Um, I've been a little bit under the weather recently, but I'm I'm back on deck. Glad to have you here on on the the, the figurative deck. This is, of course, the Super Jump podcast. We are a gaming podcast, um, and this week we will continue, against all odds, to talk about video games. Now, if you aren't subscribed to us, if you maybe uh, just caught the last episode and that was your first episode of the Super Jump podcast, and now you're just kind of listening to it now please do subscribe to us you can do that on uh itunes or Castbox or apple podcasts the app on your your iphone your cellular iphone you can do that at any of the regular pod catching places i don't know if we still call them pod catchers but uh that that is what they are so you can find those there <laughs> um and if you want to if you want to give us a review on any of those places as well we're definitely, definitely excited to uh, to hear from you in that area as well, and we could always use the feedback. So, we will get into our first segment, the Playtime Report. In this segment, James and I talk about what we've been playing since the last episode, try to keep you up to date with the way that we've been keeping ourselves up to date james why don't you go first you've got some interesting stuff here yeah so my my constant over the last few episodes has been Fortnite. um not much really to say about that except it's still good and i'm still playing it it's still kind of one of my go-to games um <clears throat> i am also kind of working through a backlog a little bit i started playing gravity rush 2 yeah uh, yeah yeah, this is one of those games that was um, one of those excellent games from 2017. That was that just kind eaten of, by Zelda, right? Yeah, eaten by Zelda and Persona 5 and all these other brilliant games that came out last year. It was uh, it was um, January last year, right? Yeah, yeah, it was very early in the year. And I mean, I haven't played the original, um, so this is my first Gravity Rush game. Um, but I just started playing it recently and it's absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Um, and the other game I'm playing is Metal Gear Survive. <laughs> so that is, uh, that is an interesting thing to be playing right now. It's, it's very interesting. It feels, um... Now when you say you're playing it, are you actually still playing it or d- did you play it? No, I'm still playing it. Wow, yeah. okay. Yeah, it it feels... Um, I, I was commenting to one of my siblings uh, a few days ago that it feels kind of illicit to actually be playing it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's... it's I I don't know how far we want to go into this, but I... Let's get deep. I would, Let's get dirty. <laughs> it's, okay. I guess the, the first thing to say is... Um, I kind of went in without much in the way of expectations. I maybe I went in with slightly low expectations that might have influenced how I feel about the game to some extent. 
Um, I, when I, when they announced it, I was definitely interested in the premise, but I, like everybody else, I wondered if it was just going to be kind of a cheap cash in. Um, and having played it, I've, I've only played the multiplayer once. Um, I've been working my way through kind of the single player. I don't know if I'd call it a campaign, but the single player mode. Sure. And I'm enjoying it. Uh, it's it's good. It's not it it it's not bad. It should exist. Um, it is. It is a very. Uh, it's weird when saying that a game should exist is like pretty loaded. <laughs> I know. Yeah, <laughs> that should be like a very easy thing to say about a game. And even now, it, even for this game, not so much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, absolutely. Um, I mean, I guess the thing is, the obvious thing about it is that it's definitely not, it definitely doesn't feel like a Metal Gear game in some respects. Um, But I also don't think that is a terribly controversial thing because Metal Gear Rising uh, Revengeance was um, a bigger departure from the Metal Gear Solid series than Survivors. Oh yeah, they've got tons of weird spin-offs and stuff. There have been lots of weird spin-offs. Metal Gear um, Acid, remember that one? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say it feels like it's difficult to describe. It it sort of feels like a combination of DayZ, State of Decay, and Metal Gear Solid Five. And the Metal Gear Solid Five elements are not very pronounced. Um, in other words, it feels to me much more like a DayZ or a State of Decay than Metal Gear 5. Um, it is, especially when you start, it is brutally difficult. It, it really leans into the survive aspect in a very harsh way. And I think in a very deliberately harsh way. I don't think it's, I don't think it's harsh in terms of, um, bad design if that makes sense i think it's very deliberately designed that way um and i'm probably now uh i'd say i'm probably five hours in maybe and what platform are you it, playing it on uh ps4 pro gotcha um so i'm probably i'm probably roughly about five hours in and it definitely the first probably two to three hours are very grueling and very slow. And you are, you know, you, you are literally fighting to survive each day and make sure that you have enough food and water, um, just to travel fairly short distances to gather materials. Yeah. It seems like that's usually the kind of, the kind of way these survival games start, even like Minecraft kind of does it. The, the first little yeah. bit of it feels very, uh, very tense. Yeah. And, and I can imagine people, uh, especially if they have come from Metal Gear Solid 5, I can imagine people starting this game and actually being turned off, like, you know, not, not getting through that hump of the first couple of hours um, and kind of not seeing what the rest of the game has to offer. Um, but I've been enjoying it enough to continue playing. Um, there are definitely elements to it that are 
you know, clearly um, like recycled Metal Gear Solid Five assets and that sort of stuff. But if you read what people have written about it, especially fans, um, it's easy to get the impression that you've just been dropped into, you know, um, Metal Gear Solid Five, and some dust filters have been added and some zombies have been added and that's it. Yeah. It's, it's easy to get that impression and that's not accurate. It is it is a much more carefully designed, real kind of carefully realized world from what I've played so far. Um, I've I've been really fascinated by the response to it. Um, I've been watching a lot of the conversations on social media and on the various subreddits and that sort of thing. And it's, it's really interesting to me um, because there are a lot of issues around this game that I think have been, uh, are being conflated um, and, and in a way that's not necessarily helpful or useful. Um, well, and just the from, other thing I've noticed... I, I'm really surprised to see you coming at this that positively, to be honest, because even the way that you explained it to me right now, just even like the positive mm. things about it, sound not good to me. I, 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 don't, I don't know. The, the things... I, I don't know if I could be more turned off from a game as I am from Metal Gear Survive. I have no intention of playing this game almost ever. Probably. Is, yeah, there, I mean, is it I've... is it unfair? Because I, on the one hand, it is just a genre that I don't like personally. Mm. It's not my favorite thing. Yeah, look, I think it, it's not that it's unfair. I mean, I can imagine there are going to be a lot of people who just aren't into this type of game. Number one, there are going to be a lot of people who have watched footage of the game and sort of thought oh you know it looks a bit boring it's pretty bland it's not really for me i might skip it i think that's completely reasonable there's, there's nothing wrong with that and if you've read reviews and you've sort of come away with the conclusion it's not your thing i think that's cool where i think it does get unfair and sort of ridiculous is when people for example decide they want to boycott this game because of Kojima um, or because of the reports around um, Konami's corporate culture. Um, there are there are a lot of reasons being imported into this as to why this game is the second coming of the Antichrist. <laughs> um, and and I think... I think... Um, a lot of gamers are getting a little carried away with stuff that's not really relevant or yeah. at least not directly relevant. Um, certainly, as, as horrible as the reports about Konami's corporate culture are, I have to say I was reading a GameIndustry.biz article recently that was talking about... Um, it was talking about Konami, but it was also talking about, unfortunately the fairly widespread examples of um, bad corporate culture in Japanese game studios in general. Um, and there have been some pretty infamous cases, including one, this was ages ago. Um, I think it, I, I could have this wrong. I think it was Sega 
where they actually ended up, uh, it, it wasn't just about anonymous complaints from people that left the company. It was, there was a case, I think, that was taken to court in Japan around an employee that they they didn't want to fire. They virtually bullied this employee for a long period of time until he ended up leaving. Um, and and un unfortunately, there are many cases like this, uh, I think particularly in the Japanese game industry, that doesn't make them excusable in, in any way. They're definitely not. But when people sort of come out and say, you know, they, they essentially say, if you play this game, you are condoning a corporation bullying its employees. And I think that's really a bridge too far. Uh, because if you do want to take that ethical line, which you're welcome to take, you then have to be, you then, ha I think you're then obligated to not be a hypocrite. So you then have to, uh, you know, effectively stop playing a lot of your favorite games, frankly. Sure. Um, you know, if you're going to take that hard stance. So it, it's been really interesting. Um, I'm planning to review this game um for super jump i'm i think i'm gonna have to play a lot more before i can review it though because it does the game sort of unfolds um and changes quite a lot as you play through it's kind of broken up into these major phases um so i, I feel like i need to play a lot more to really understand it and to really review it but when the review comes out i'll be interested to see if there's any strange reactions because if you look at any of the major gaming outlets like if you look at their youtube channels even when they've done reviews that have said it's just good or it's mediocre they're getting mass downvoted all over the place like it's it's a completely outrageous reaction i think we probably don't have too much time to d dive into this very complex issue right now <laughs> um but but yeah, it it is strange. We could probably do a whole episode just about morally ambiguous games, um, and and specific examples of when it's not even an issue of quality being good or bad. Just like a game could, in theory, be be morally bad. Uh, people don't really think in those terms too often with this kind of stuff. But I I suppose it's true. Um, I I've heard the argument you've put for forward a few times now, and I am not sure I can completely get on board with it. If I'm being honest, um, I, I understand that a large problem with saying, if you support metal gear survive, you're supporting this bullying is the fact that so many other people at Konami aren't just the executives, right? There's, there's mm. whole teams of artists and programmers who have had nothing to do with, the ousting of Kojima from the company. And uh, if you don't su support Metal Gear Survive out of hate for people at the top level, you're just also not supporting all these leftover staffers from the other Metal Gear games. And mm. uh, and that is troubling. I, I definitely see the point there. But at the same time, I, I feel like that's almost saying that if these executives are making decisions you think are terrible, you can't vote against them with your wallet, right? Uh, 
No, no, I think, and and that's the, I think that's a really key point there. I think you can, and and I, you know, people make all people have all kinds of reasons why they purchase one product or another or they don't, and that's fine. I think what I object to is kind of the mass the mass downvoting of anyone that even talks about the game or the the way in which people want to make ethical judgments about people who have chosen to buy the game and play the game. There's an element of, um, I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it bullying, but there's kind of a a fairly poisonous mob mentality around it. I think that's really lacking a lot of nuance. Uh, even the whole question of the ousting of Kojima. If you actually look at the, the timeline and you look at what is on the public record, there is a lot we don't know about that. And there is an assumption that Konami is this evil corporation that's just punished Kojima. I think we have to be very careful about that, though. Kojima was a vice president at Konami for a long time. Um, you know, I, I think I think there there is a lot about that story that is unknown. Um, right. And what's happened is this great big narrative has been built up around it, and that narrative that's largely come from fans has sort of just been accepted as fact. So we're sort of in this funny there's sort of this funny tribal thing going on which um it just reminds me of some of the some of the darker things we saw in in the gaming community you know years ago like um i mean i hesitate to compare it to gamergate it's not nearly that serious but there are there is a flavor of of this mob mentality that surfaces now and then um and and i think it's a very um i think it can be be a very poisonous thing too true well james i've been playing luigi's balloon world (laughs) Uh, luigi's balloon world is of course the update to super mario odyssey that recently came out it was a free update um it it was kind of sizable not like a full expansion Mm. or anything but it was this new mini game that i i don't know if i said it on the podcast or not i i think i might have talked about how just dumb i thought it was um and <laughs> it turned out it was only a little bit dumb um but it was oh, definitely okay. it was still dumb <laughs> but it wasn't as dumb as i thought it was um yeah so i i hid some balloons and i found some balloons <laughs> and um my my fear here would just be that like people would find these like they would glitch into the geometry and find ways to just put balloons wherever they wanted and Mm. um it's just not the case because this update also came with a with a gameplay patch and a lot of the ways that you can get into the uh like out of bounds areas and just clipping through things have been patched um it's it's no longer nearly as easy to clip through super mario odyssey um it was already hard now it's almost impossible in most cases Mm. um the speedrunning community didn't like that very much um Mm -hmm. thankfully for them 
not too they weren't currently at least uh, working with a route that required too much clipping um, yeah. but there was a little bit of clipping they they wanted to keep and uh, they couldn't uh, so mm. that happened to them but I'm not a speedrunner so I don't know too much about that all I can say is I hit some balloons found some balloons and then as soon as I did that enough times you earn coins by doing this as soon as I did this enough times to get enough coins to buy the new outfits that also came with the update I was done. I was out of there. <laughs> uh, oh, well, that a- that answers my question about whether or not this mode has any staying power beyond a few minutes, I guess. Uh, not at all, James. <laughs> uh, as far as I can see, uh, you'd have to be really into mm. it to keep doing it. You like there, I, I yeah. um, I'm thinking of some YouTube channels that like constantly are putting out videos of things like can I make this impossible jump in the Cascade Kingdom from, you know, it, it's some it's a, like a huge distance that you wouldn't assume that you, you'd be able to make. But if you get just the right speed roll off the ledge and then jump in midair and then do a really particular combination of hat throw and bounce and everything, you can get from one place to another easier than maybe you thought you could. Um, I mm. think that this mode is specifically for those YouTube channels. Um, yeah. this mode was put in specifically so YouTubers can hide balloons for other YouTubers. Um, mm. And what an interesting world we live in when Nintendo does that. What a crazy, crazy world this is. Um, <laughs> but so my takeaway is that I got the new, um, I got the new costumes and they were fine. Uh, and I mm. hadn't actually bought all the extra moons to get up to the max moon. I had only gotten all of the unique moons in the game. So I got enough coins. Yeah. I, I figured as long as I'm doing this, let me get enough coins so I can max out on moons. And then when there was nothing else for me mm. to buy in the game, I was done. <laughs> like I, I was just, I'm, I'm hard <laughs> out. It, it was a fun thing while it yeah. lasted, but it, it's clearly not for me. And I think Nintendo knows that they didn't design it for players um like me or even not like me but just like not a youtuber yeah uh, yeah i i totally agree it definitely looks like it's catering to that very specific crowd i um i haven't played it at all i i'd i'd still jump into mario odyssey now and then a little bit because i've got a second um save file but I, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much done with the game. I think I I probably won't revisit it for Well, this. in order to get Luigi to show up, you need to have a completed save file. You at least beat Bowser, mm-hmm. uh, like, the final time once in order to make him show up. Yeah. Um, we've been in talks, you and I, James, about possibly getting into the YouTube industry ourselves. Maybe we'll hide some balloons for each other when that, when that comes around. Um... <laughs> That sounds yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> you won't find mine. It's in the geometry. Because uh, <laughs> there's still some ways you can clip. Um, another yeah. thing I've been playing that uh, is not unlike me at all is Banjo-Kazooie. I play through this probably once every like two, one and a half years now. Um, mm. I'm, I really... If anyone is curious about the preferred way to play, I'm I'm 100% behind the uh, Xbox Live Arcade version of Banjo-Kazooie. Um, the N64 version of Banjo-Kazooie is original and there's nothing wrong with it, but like there's also nothing wrong with the remake, which is 
crazy. That doesn't happen ever. Um, just there's nothing wrong mm. with it, in my opinion. Um, I did this to do research for last week's episode, which, if you haven't heard, it was a a musical walkthrough of Banjo Kazooie, where I uh, I went through the songs in that game and talked about how they work on a on a pseudo music theory level. If you're interested in that, you can go check that out. That should be in the same feed as whatever you're listening uh, to this on. And finally, I've been uh, I've been playing some more Pico 8 games. I talked about this last time, how I'm developing a game in Pico 8. And even though this is a super limited console, it, it can't do very much. It can do a lot. Mm. It, it just doesn't tell you that it can. The, the things that people are figuring mm. out how to do in Pico 8 are astounding and super inspiring. And I'm, I'm, I'm definitely... Uh, using some tips that I'm picking up here and there when I'm playing through these games for the development of my own game. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so th- so th- those have been really cool. Your for the development of your Sea of Thieves Pico Eight, right? Port, yeah, right. Uh, if if you can call it a, a <laughs> port, uh, I am attempting to port, or it's a fan demake, stupid little thing. Uh, sea of Thieves to the Pico 8, trying to get that going. Right now, I'm trying to uh, work out how the game is going to handle you changing the direction of your sail. Um, I've I've mm. programmed 24 different sail orientations, and uh, I hated doing it. <laughs> I hated doing it so much. Uh, oh, man, I hated doing it so much. Um <laughs> Yeah, so that's been the Playtime Report. <laughs> uh, next we have the Newsy Nibble. So, uh, James, you hear about this? The, <laughs> the American <laughs> video game industry is in the news for tons of political reasons. Oh, God help us. Yeah, Mitchell. so let's go through these one at a time. We have I have three instances mm-hmm. of the video game industry being in the news. Um, the first is that Donald Trump, he's uh he's apparently the the president of the United States of America, has been criticizing video games for purported links to mass shootings. Um, this is something that was happening in the 90s pretty heavily and the ESRB was created to combat that um it was basically a way for the video game industry themselves to say no 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 you don't need to step in here government we're actually going to monitor ourselves and uh, if as long as you think that the ESRB is accountable enough we will use it to hold ourselves accountable um and that is uh, at least how the American rating system of of video games came around. I don't know about the uh, the systems in other territories. What is the Australian one called? So we have a system called um, the OFLC, the Office of Film and Literature Classification. Um, so all all of our media content is kind of classified under the same system so video games have the same classification systems as films and television and all the rest of it um do your books I have ratings the own 
No, no. I don't know why they say literature. There must be something that gets... There must be some literature that gets classified, but I haven't maybe, seen uh, it. Like, I haven't seen it on a novel maybe, or anything, for example. Maybe graphic novels or something. It, yeah, there might be certain things, but... Um, I mean, the, the only thing we... The only issue we really faced that was, I guess, controversial was that for a very long time we had an R rating for movies and television so in australia r rating is 18 and above um but the highest rating we had for video games was ma 15 plus mature audiences 15 plus uh and what that meant was um we went for a very long time where certain games were going through the classification process and because they really needed to fit into an R rating category, they were effectively banned uh, because they were they couldn't be classified, um, and and that led to like a big kind of debate and discussion. And the video game industry here pushed very hard for a long time to get an R rating for video games, which they achieved. So as a result, now it's all pretty much in alignment, and we. You know, we, we're getting access to a lot of games that would otherwise have been banned. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So, but we haven't had, at least in my memory, I, I don't think we've really had any major debates that I can remember around, like, video games being specifically targeted... Uh, as being the cause of certain forms of violence and that well, sort of thing. Well, it could just be because um, you don't have a lot of it. Um, violence, that is. Uh, <laughs> in Australia, in the mid-90s, around the same time that the ESRB was getting worked up in the Americas, uh, you guys outlawed many kinds of uh, gun-having. Um, in fact... I think by by now it it was a gradual process, but by now, if you're a normal citizen, you pretty much cannot have a gun whatsoever. Is that right? Yeah, we we'd had, um, so we we definitely had had some mass shootings in Australia, and in the nineties there was a we had our largest mass shooting ever in tasmania uh, at a tourist site there i can't remember the numbers but it was awful it was something like 30 or 35 people were killed uh and i think the the weapon was some sort of semi-automatic weapon um at the time we had a conservative government in power so our equivalent of your republican party um although <laughs> Our, our conservatives probably aren't as conservative as your conservatives. Probably true. Um, but basically what happened was there was, there really was not a lot of debate after that incident happened. I think it was, it was such a shocking incident. Um, and from memory, the gun had been purchased legally and all the rest of it, um, which is, usually the case i think in these incidents it's usually a legally purchased weapon and basically our conservative government said okay we've had enough this is happening this has happened enough times that we're going to do something about it once and for all 
and they they essentially banned i think all automatic and semi-automatic weapons uh and a lot of other weapons as well uh you can't purchase them in australia and you can't import them so there's a very strict um kind of customs process around weapons as well and what they did was um they didn't just sort of go to people's homes and take their guns they they had a gun buyback scheme which ended uh only in the last few years i think and essentially it said you know if you have one of these kinds of weapons you can bring it to a, a center uh where we will destroy it and we will pay you your original purchase price for the weapon so um it was a fairly generous scheme where the government you know reimbursed people um and since then we've had no mass shootings at all uh we it, it doesn't mean to say we don't have any gun crime but what happens now is if there's an incident with a gun it's so rare that it makes national news so like if if one for example if someone is shot with a handgun uh it makes national news in in all the states here um and it's it's treated as a as a very rare and serious problem um so f you know from an australian point of view we pretty much just said right we've had enough we're just fixing this we're we're just uh we're taking the guns out of circulation end of story and there was pretty much national consensus on doing that right so we um i i think you said that incident in the 90s was around the uh the the 30s of casualties we recently here in the u.s mm. had a shooting in las vegas that was up to 50 it was over 50 casualties and uh this is what president trump ha is coming out and, and and talking about here he's talking about not just uh not just that shooting but shootings relating it to it and he's citing video games and movies as the uh, as the probable cause for the this kind of aggression and that maybe we should have a rating system uh <laughs> that's that's the funniest <laughs> yeah, part that'd be a good idea Mitchell. yeah yeah it's isn't it amazing that no one has thought of that yeah. before i'm yeah he incredible. actually said that he actually <laughs> said maybe there should be some sort of rating system um <laughs> yeah man, maybe hmm and uh, in in uh, response to his own thing, he later said that he is uh, he has plans to meet with the heads of the American video game industry uh, to to talk about this, to talk about the problem he says they have. And the heads of the video game American industry uh, basically all came out: Nintendo of America, EA, Activision Blizzard. Uh, sony's departments here microsoft they've all come out and they said we don't know what you're talking about none of us have had an inter invitation <laughs> to talk with you about this at all nor would we really feel the need to talk about it because you know the problem is is obviously the fact that these guns are so easy to get here not necessarily hmm. the video games relating to them um so so there's that and <laughs> mm -hmm. at the ESRB, the, the rating system, which may or may not exist for video games, um, they've recently <laughs> created a new label 
And this is not necessarily related to violence at all. This is related mm. to uh, in, in-game purchasing, in, in-app purchasing. Here's a, mm. uh, here's a little press blurb from e- the ESRB. I'm going to go ahead and read it here. This is them. You may have noticed that we've been a little quiet on the topic of in-game purchases and loot boxes, but we've been listening. In fact, we've absorbed every tweet, email, Facebook post, and singing telegram sent our way, and we've been working to develop a sensible approach to let gamers and parents know when a game offers the option to purchase additional content. Starting soon, the ESRB will be assigning a brand new label to physical games, in-game purchases in-game purchases this label or as we call it interactive element so i assume that just means like anything that they list right next to the big letter is an interactive element some things that might be there instead are things like uh use of drugs or alcohol cartoon violence etc and now in-game purchases will be one of those interactive elements will appear on boxes and wherever those games can be downloaded for all games that offer the ability to purchase digital goods or premiums with real-world currency. This this includes features like bonus levels, skins, surprise items such as item packs, loot boxes, or mystery awards, music, virtual coins, and other forms of in-game currency subscription, season passes, upgrades, e.g. to disable ads, and more. We're also launching a new website called parentaltools.org to help raise awareness of the helpful tools that parents can use to manage the amount of time or money those crafty kids spend playing with games. This is the first step of many. We'll continue to discuss how to further enhance our rating system with publishers, developers, gamers, and especially parents, and we'll continue to make adjustments as the need arises. Thank you all for your patience on this and your love for the games we rate. So a couple things, James. The ESRB works differently mm. than some other rating systems in the world. Um, it is not made of any kind of governmental authority. It is only an, mm-hmm. an, uh, an alliance of the larger video game industry in America. Um the office of film and literature is that a governmental agency in australia um it's so i don't quite understand how it works because it it's my understanding is yes it's sort of a public agency but when i did um work experience at nintendo i noticed that um Nintendo and other game companies were essentially self-rating. So the OFLC would set up a framework um, of, of how you determine what the rating is. And game companies basically run through this framework and fill it all out and essentially decide their own rating. And then I believe they submit that for final review. So it's sort of a partnership, I guess, between private and public sectors. Gotcha. Well, the ESRB is a nonprofit, but it is it is entirely private. Um, so yeah. this is this is what a lot of people are are, are talking about. This is in game purchases in any way. So the remember how everyone loved 
the way that Nintendo handled DLC from the original Mario Kart 8, um, where it mm-hmm. there was so much new content, and it was all attached to a season pass, and it was basically like doubling the size of the game. Th- this would mm-hmm. be that. That's an in-game purchase, um, as would any of the real-world currency to fake currency um things that you could do in a game like battlefront 2 uh that recently made the news for having really deceptive loot boxes um that is all Mm. on the same level here they are all in-game purchases they all get the same interactive element i put in air quotes that you couldn't see uh from the esrb yeah what do you think of that uh i well I think the the way that your the way that your question is sort yep. of going there, um, <laughs> it is pointed and directed. <laughs> is is pretty pretty much uh, pretty much marries up with what I feel. I was looking at this and thinking, well, what this means is nearly all video games sold in America will have this label yeah. now. And if I were a, a an innocent parent that knew nothing about video games. This would tell me precisely nothing. Absolutely. It would tell you absolutely um, nothing. It and, and the fact of the matter is nothing. that phone games already have this label because um, the ESRB does not write phone games. Apple and Google have their own thing going on where they, they don't really have a rating system so much as they just say, like, if it, it is physically possible to buy something in-game, it'll say in, in-app purchases are, are present in the uh, Google Play Store, yeah. the the iStore, the App Store. Um, so now this is just going to look like this, and now every single game will probably have in-app purchases, in-game purchases on the on the label. One one weird, not exception to this, but uh, I, I'm not sure how this would be handled. That I was thinking about yesterday was um, the fact that Horizon Zero Dawn launched without any in-game purchases whatsoever. There was no DLC, to my knowledge. There was no um, microtransactions for mm. for any kind of like outfits or tools or anything like that. Um, but later in the mm. year, in, in the in August, I think maybe September or October around then, the Frozen Wilds DLC for Horizon Zero Dawn came out, and that suddenly introduced the idea of dlc to a game that previously had none in mind publicly at least like there was no Mm. announced dlc that dlc was announced long after launch all of a sudden this label does nothing for a parent right they can look at their kids shelf Mm. the games on the shelf and they see horizon zero dawn they'll look at the rating and Horizon Zero Dawn might be a bad example because I think it might be M, and I guess at that point the the parent has made their decision about how how they want to look at ratings uh, for their kids. But for for the for the most part, if you're just focused on in game purchases and you look at Horizon Zero Dawn, it won't say that on the label because that game was printed before the in game purchases were announced. Yeah, I yeah I don't know yeah, what that means. I, like I I, it... I don't I, I yeah I just don't see it working. I mean I think and I haven't looked at the or oh, maybe the website's not up yet. Parentaltools.org. I think 
the the biggest thing the ESRB can do to help is really just provide tools and information for parents. I think that's the key thing. I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying this dramatically, but if I were a parent with a child playing, say, Switch or PS4, whatever, my answer to this would, would simply be not to save my credit card information yeah. <laughs> on the console uh, so that my child cannot physically purchase anything without you know, getting me to look at it first. Um, I, I just, I, I don't think this is really going to make any difference. Uh, it, it looks to me just kind of like a fairly sort of desperate public relations attempt. I, I don't know that it's a meaningful change in any way. Right. I, I think, I think kids are just the, the tip of the iceberg here. If they frame this as a thing, mm. like there's that line, hang on, let me read through this again. Raise awareness of the helpful tools that parents can use to manage the amount of time or money those crafty kids spend playing games. This is a reframing mm. of the problem. It, it, yeah. It's reframing the problem to be about kids doing this when they either don't understand that they're spending real world money or they don't care that they're spending their parents' money or just the parents' Are, are oblivious to like oh i didn't even know that you could pay more after you already paid for a game like all all that stuff yeah that's a problem probably but i don't think that was anyone's like main problem with this style or with certain styles of in-game purchases including and, and most specifically loot boxes this this was yes. really really big in the news last year with star wars battlefront mm. 2 from ea we already touched on it a little bit but um basically to get most things in that game you needed to buy these these loot boxes this was in the beta period when the game actually came out ea was under so much fire uh for having these randomized uh purchases that they said actually nope you know what there's no microtransactions whatsoever right now but they're just going to come out later and they're going to bring them back. Uh, I don't know if they have brought them back yet. I haven't exactly been following that. But, um, <clears throat> I mean, kids, yeah, that was a problem with kids. Because if kids really like Star Wars, they're going to get Battlefront 2. And maybe they could just buy more and more and more loot boxes. But this is also, it, it, it just, it funnels into people's uh, gambling addictions, which are a very real thing. Um and even mm. if they don't already have gambling addictions, uh, they they might just have them and not know about them. They're latent, and some a game like this could activate their their gambling addictions for the first time, which is hugely destru destructive on a person. And that's like with those people, we're mainly talking about adults at this time. And then there's also the fact that a lot of people are just complaining about that being terrible design because it doesn't actually let you unlock anything via gameplay. It just unlocks things via a counter. So it, it's, it's the fact that these are microtransactions are actually affecting other elements of the design of the game. And this mm. only focusing on kids just does not, does not solve the problem whatsoever. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a, uh, I think it's sort of a fundamental consumer affairs or consumer protections issue. I mean, uh, I haven't played Destiny Two in a long time, but um, when I was playing it, uh, you know, like a lot of games, you can 
purchase an in-game currency and they have kind of an equivalent of loot boxes to to get um you know certain gear i think it was i think it was all cosmetic which is good but the problem was that um you know again you were you were buying something that when you opened it you had no idea what was going to be in there so there was no transparency or predictability around what you were actually paying Mm -hmm. for and um so i think this framing it as a question of in-game purchases fundamentally misunderstands the problem um and uh, and i'm noticing in a lot of the conversation around this um a lot of people are sort of using the word microtransactions as you know microtransactions equals bad right. but i think people people are forgetting that Really, you know, micro whether you call it microtransactions or in-game purchases or whatever, at the end of the day, you're purchasing some sort of content, and not all of that is equal. A lot of it is is very um, uh, transparent, and you know, you mentioned Mario Kart as an example where you're absolutely getting a lot of value for money, and then you've got this other stuff at the other end of the spectrum that's really just a form of you know kind of online gambling virtually that's the value is questionable there's no transparency and you could really argue that it's pretty detrimental to consumers right yeah definitely um so i don't know what the answer is except to say i had thought that the esrb might have considered if they were going to have a label i thought they might have considered just having a label around like loot boxes or gambling style game in, systems. In any kind of randomized thing, right? Yeah. Well, here's... Yeah. That's right. Here's my take. Um, I don't think this is a misunderstanding on the part of the ESRB. I, I put a tweet out saying it's pretty silly to have this um, like equate big expansions for a game like the Frozen Wilds or Champions Ballad or something like that with these these mm. loot boxes and i i uh, mm. i no longer think it's silly i think it is actively nefarious um because the the esrb remember is the games industry i'm sure ea had a, a part in doing this ea is part of the esrb and they're it, it, it's they're pretending to hold themselves accountable and i think what they're doing here is not necessarily that as much as they're holding themselves away from government intervention here because if they can say that what they're doing in their their loot box system is the Mm. same as every game um it doesn't look that bad anymore like it's purposefully vague so they can be equated with the other the good guys of in-game purchases so Mm. they can all just be thrown into one swamp and not um not not be uh singled out for having randomized actually kind of evil practices yeah that i hadn't considered that point that's a really really interesting point um that makes a lot of sense i can definitely see companies like ea actively trying to sort of normalize this this approach you know as you say by lumping it all together under one umbrella um yeah i think that's yeah there was some uh there was some talks that i i don't think amounted to much unless i this is just big and i haven't been following it um 
in Hawaii for possibly putting some government constraints on randomized in-game purchases. And mm -hmm. uh, the, the thing with the ESRB is that since they've been around, the government has pretty much said that they are not going to regulate video game content because they trust the ESRB to do so until they stop trusting the ESRB. It, it looks more like a shield in this case than it is actually something poking and prodding at the video game industry and making sure that they're doing the things they're supposed to be doing, which is really disappointing. Mm. Um, so yeah. sorry, sorry, people out there. That's uh, three newsy niblets of the American video game industry shitting the bed a little <laughs> bit. But uh, we have other topics in this show. Next is perusing a selection of sexy Charmander keyrings at Hot Topic. I'm going to run out of things that you can buy at Hot Topic pretty soon. <laughs> Do you guys have Hot Topic? Is that a thing that people know about outside of where I live? Uh, I don't know. I don't think we have it. I, I'm thinking of, I'm confusing it with Topshop. No, Hot Topic we don't have. I don't think. Hot Topic. Uh, I could be wrong. I might not be cool enough, maybe. Hot Topic uh, was at in its heyday, I think it when when i was in middle school or so in the mid 2000s um and mm. it was it was growing out of the the goth scene and the emo scene really hitting their peaks mm -hmm. in in american culture and uh it's just a lot of stuff like that and for some reason they never closed down like they just still exist um <laughs> they there's a lot of stuff like like all kinds of black accessories with spikes on it that you can wear and black lipstick and then also just a bunch of like pop culture things on a t-shirt except they're like drawn maybe a little bit like not to form <laughs> uh that's that's what hot topic is just in case there are some listeners out there that don't have the same experience with the store that i do uh <laughs> so this this week's hot topic is the return of the 3d platformer in 2017 there was a huge renaissance in the 3d platformer um ukulele a hat in time super mario odyssey crash insane Tr uh, trilogy and sonic forces all came out last year that's huge there hasn't been that many 3d platformers in a single year maybe ever like even during its heyday i don't think there were that many in one year um mm. and and uh I, I, I doubt that we're going to get as many this year, but it does feel like they're back. It was a thing that was really mm. big in the late 90s and early 2000s that just kind of petered out um, between, really between Super Mario 64 and Super Mario Sunshine. There were all these 3D platformers, and people got sick of them. There were so many of them. Um and, and by the time Super Mario Sunshine came out, everyone else in the industry was like, well, obviously this is, uh, this, this is swamped. There, there are too many 3D platformers right now. If we make one, we'll be eaten out. And everyone in the industry thought that at the same time, I guess. And the only person making 3D platformers, or the only, there were two companies... Uh, Sega made Sonic ones, and Nintendo made Mario ones. 
Crash died out. Banjo-Kazooie died out. Spyro died out. Uh, Rayman kept going, but Rayman didn't do 3D platformers anymore. It only did minigame collections with Raving Rabbids, or it went back to its 2D platforming origins with uh, Rayman Origins. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Yeah. so it's kind of this renaissance of an idea that was really beloved at the time that that just hadn't been continued. Um, there's some Kickstarters that finally came to fruition last year, specifically Ukulele and A Hat in Time, of uh, mm-hmm. both of those games were kind of based on the idea of nostalgia for 3D platformers. They, they said, people just don't make these games like they used to anymore. And that's true. And uh, And they were trying to make them like the late 90s 3D platformers that people remember. More so ukulele mm. than a hat in time. Ukulele specifically being by the original, um, by parts of the original Banjo Kazooie team, and a hat in time being by fans of things like Psychonauts, uh, Super Mario Sunshine, and Banjo Kazooie as well. Um, and the the AAA games industry had Super Mario Odyssey, which in a lot of ways is also a hearkening back to that era, being the first open-world 3D Mario game since Sunshine, Crash Insane Trilogy, which is a mm-hmm. remake of that era's Crash Bandicoot games, and Sonic Forces, which didn't... It, it, of all of them that I remember from last year, Sonic Forces is actually the only one <laughs> that did not harken back to that period of 3D platformers. It is also significantly the lowest rated of all of these. Uh, <laughs> so so that was 2017 it, it felt very much like a revitalization of the old 90s 3d platformers but something has been interesting uh something interesting has been happening early this year in 2018 james uh Fea by zoink a swedish studio uh it was published by ea came out and that was a 3d platformer mm-hmm. pretty much unlike the late 90s stuff it, it was not tied to the late 90s 3D platformer era at all. And Mulaka, which is a an indie game from a studio called Lienzo, uh, which is a really cool uh, retelling of some lore from the Tarahumara tribe of Native Americans that live in the Chihuahua area, uh, area of, uh, of Mexico. So we all of a sudden we have mm. some 3D platformers coming out that are no longer just referential to the late 90s stuff. Now in the year 2018, we actually have some stuff that seems very much like it's going to push the genre forward. Um, got any thoughts on that? Mm. Um, well, I, I was I was looking at this in the show notes and and thinking about you know why this could be the case, and really the only thing. The only thing I could think of was, aside from the obvious kind of nostalgia, which I think, um, you know, some of these games, especially 3D platformers, are now probably just old enough that they can be considered, you know, genuine nostalgia pieces. Um, But, you know, aside from that, I, I just wonder if, and this is a very poor explanation, but I just wonder if it's literally a question of certain genres you know, having time in the sun for a, a period. And then, as you said earlier, they sort of, we get to a situation where we get a glut of, of those games. It becomes a little oversaturated. 
then they kind of recede for a few years. Another genre maybe takes its place as being the next big thing. And then people kind of naturally come back to it after a while because it is a very, I think it is one of those genres that um, is, um, how would I put it? It's it's kind of one of those core mainstay genres, you know, like first person yeah, shooters. Yeah. It's it's In one its of those genres period, that I it can't. Was the, it, it, the genre, like the prototypical thing. Yeah. Right now, I think only right now, first person shooters are kind of fading out in form of the open world adventure game. Um, mm. It it seems like it it was um, it was two D platformers, and then in the early nineties you had some RPG dominance, um, mm. and then three D platformers. And then first-person shooters for an extremely long time. Um, yeah, and yeah, the yeah. I, I think what puts the 3D platformer apart from those other things is that those other things continued to exist at a lower form after they were past their prime. Um, like there were still all mm. these JRPGs after the boom of JRPGs in the early nineties. Uh, like there still are JRPGs and they're still really big when they want to be big. They're just not like the thing. Um, uh, and there's still 2d platformers coming out all the time. Now we have the indie scene that's really globbed onto 2d platformers and has been developing that without them being the definitive thing that actually sells a lot of copies. It just happens because the art people are really into it. And the 3d platformer until now, um, it just wasn't like it, it it just wasn't being produced outside of mario and sonic um and this is my favorite genre we've talked about this on the show before so that makes me kind of sad but i need i need be sad no longer it seems because it, things are happening suddenly um yeah yeah and i'm sure there are a lot of people um who are playing some of these 3d platformers now, you know, that never played super Mario 64 or Banjo Kazooie, or, you know, for a lot of people, this, this will be their introduction to the oh, genre. I bet, yeah. Um, and you know, I, I wonder as well, how much these trends are influenced by certain games, you know, certain kind of flagship games arriving at certain times. Um, I mean, the, the huge response that ukulele had on Kickstarter has got to have been a big influence for a lot of other studios, even if they decided, you know, that they weren't going to make kind of a nineties throwback, they were going to do something completely new. There were certain big indications that this was a very kind of fertile area to explore mm-hmm. again. Um, so, so I wonder if it's almost like, you know, a genre will go quiet for a while and it will take, a particular studio and a particular game to kind of suddenly reignite interest. Are you saying that would be ukulele then in this case? I think, I think there's probably a few examples. Um, ukulele has got to be one of the biggest ones, surely. I mean, even if you think about the remaster of the crash bandicoot games now, maybe Sony was always planning to do that. I don't know, but you know, if you're sitting there at Sony and thinking about greenlighting this project, spending money on this thing, you are probably looking at the response that games like Ukulele have had. You're probably looking at, you know, what's happening with the indie titles in, in terms of platformers. You're, you wouldn't be blind to this kind of 
yeah. renaissance, you know, this kind of growing interest in this genre. Um, and so I think these things kind of tend to feed each other a little bit because then, of course, if Crash Bandicoot Remaster performs really well, um, no doubt that's going to inspire other studios to say, oh, hang on, you know, maybe we should, maybe this is an area yeah, we should look at Yeah, I would be remiss to not mention the fact that uh, there is a pseudo rumor. When I say pseudo rumor, I mean it's technically a rumor, but we all know it's true. Um, that the <laughs> it looks like the same studio that did the Crash trilogy remaster is now doing a Spyro trilogy remaster. Um, and yes, yeah, that's, I, that that's is exciting. very exciting for me. I like Spyro a lot more than I like yeah. Crash. Uh, just me though. Um, w- without getting into it too much i don't think crash bandicoot is like exactly a 3d platformer it's in 3d and it's a platformer so i guess it is but i like it, it's a 2d platformer that's kind of stretched at the sides a bit um yeah <laughs> i was thinking about this a lot because of celeste um celeste mm. I, celeste and fia i think both of those games uh fia by the way if you a lot of people are calling it Faye. Uh, I I was calling it Faye as well, but apparent the 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 studio came out on Twitter and said, "No, it's Fia." Okay, well, thanks. Um, <laughs> well, excuse me. Well, excuse me. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Celeste, to me, along with games like Shovel Knight and Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze, represent this this apex of the two D platformer. Um, so far mm. right like maybe it's not even an apex maybe we're, we're just going up and up with how sophisticated the design for 2d platformers can be and at any point in the past i would have said 2d platformers are kind of like a maxed out genre in terms of what you can do with the design but then people keep coming up with these amazing things um like if you look at celeste mm. how developed that story is and how developed um like the secrets in that game are are they mm. truly feel like they are a quarter of a century beyond Super Mario World because we are a quarter of a century beyond Super Mario World and we've been developing the genre mm. that whole time and it uh Celeste yeah. developers are savvy enough and smart enough to have been looking at what's been going on and taking like things that have worked and pushing away things that haven't worked uh, along that time since the early Mario games and making a 2D platformer that really respects what year it is and really respects like how much mm. we've learned. And yeah. Fia is a game that is not good. Um, it, I'm, it, maybe it's good. People are giving it like sevens. I haven't actually played it. I, I'm, I might be talking completely out of turn. Um, but people are saying like, I kind of expected like this big artistic thing from Fia and I didn't get that. It's just kind of a a thing Mm. to go through. It looks really nice and that's, that's about it. Um, And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if just compared to where first person shooters have gotten thanks to how much time we've spent with them. um, and, And now we can have first person shooters like doom from last year or two years ago now. Um, and PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds that like really changed the way we think about them, uh, and we're not allowed to mm. have that quite yet with 3D platformers. Like a, as innovative as people are saying that Super Mario Odyssey is, I I feel like it's only a fraction of the innovation 
that we could have been having if the genre was just going strong that whole time. Like, uh, there was this debate in the 90s yeah, over whether or not Banjo-Kazooie had actually uh, improved upon the design of Super Mario 64. It was a thing people were talking about and, like, actually mm. uh, humoring that discussion. Um, and and mm. there there are arguments on both sides both sides of that that I think are pretty valid. Like, Super Mario 64 is much more athletic. You can do a lot more fun, like, mobile stuff with Mario than you can do with Banjo, but then Banjo also rocks world design and level design better than Mario. Um, and when Mario and Sonic were the only 3D platformers, and Sonic kind of was doing its own thing the whole time that no one loved... Um, Mario was the only 3D platformer to look for. So that that argument kind of went away, right? That argument... Um, well, Banjo-Kazooie stopped. Mario didn't stop. Mario won, I guess. And it's... Like, Mario won a war of attrition with other 3D platformers. And because of that, we just haven't been like learning in ways that the Mario team, in their very specific way, hasn't been learning yeah that yeah i mean mario won a war of attrition but mario also i think mario occupies a very unique place in the genre in the sense that and and this is something i've i've actually said in numerous articles on super jump whenever i've talked about super mario 64 so it's becoming an old refrain but i think it's no less true is Super Mario 64 was really setting the framework for how you make a 3D yeah. video game. And and I don't mean, you know, in terms of graphics, because as you mentioned, Crash Bandicoot certainly had 3D graphics, but how you, how you incorporate 360 degree analog movement and truly navigate a 3D space um super mario 64 the the dna from that can be seen in so many games across many genres so mario 64 was a was a 3d platformer but it was also like an object lesson to to an industry that was still really struggling with okay we've got these new platforms coming out that enable us to make polygon based graphics how the hell do we design in 3D? Like, how do we... There wasn't even really a concept of a, of a, a floating adjustable yeah. camera system. Like, how do we make this work? How do we make it so that when you're jumping between platforms in a 3D space, you can appropriately judge distances and you know where your character's going to land and how do we get the inertia right and all of these complex questions. So... If you look at games subsequent to Mario 64, and I think especially something like Super Mario Galaxy, um, you had this situation where you had a studio that had mastered, really mastered the, the core fundamentals. And it kind of comes back to that adage for me about, you know, once you've mastered the rules, only then mm -hmm. can you break them. And Nintendo has been able pretty consistently to break those rules in really interesting ways. I mean, I don't know if you feel this way about 
Super Mario Odyssey, but playing some of those 2D kind of 8-bit segments, um, obviously a lot of them were very, very right. brief. But there were certain 2D segments in that game that were so genius, especially toward the end of the game where you have this strange combination of 8-bit Super Mario Brothers and Super Mario Galaxy gravity oh, yeah. effects. Yeah, for sure. Um, some of it was so like mind-bending out of the box. I was actually sitting there thinking, I wouldn't mind if Nintendo made an 8-bit style 2D Mario game that is all like this, where the whole game is about how do we take these rules that we've mastered over this long period of time and just continuously break them in ways that are really fascinating and that work really mm-hmm. well. Um, but you're right, outside Nintendo, and, and maybe I'm just, maybe there's a ton of games I'm missing when I say this, Outside of Nintendo, there there just don't seem to have been many developers that have really been pushing the boundaries in the genre. It only seems like now, uh, you know, developers are starting to dive back into it and, and look at how they can push the boundaries. Yeah, even Nintendo themselves, I, I would argue, to, to mm. a certain extent, hasn't been... Until Odyssey, I don't think that they've been changing up their formula or trying to like learn new things to do with the 3D platformer as much as maybe they could be, um, it, which isn't to discredit what they're doing. I, I think that they've been making great games the whole time, pretty much. But from from Galaxy yeah. to Galaxy 2 to Super Mario 3D Land to 3D World, um, they just got narrower and narrower in their focus toward athleticism in 3D platformers. Like, that was the thing that they took from Super Mario 64, and they were like, okay, this is where we're funneling 3D platformers. Um, where all of a sudden, in, in Mario Odyssey, that athleticism is still there because that's how Mario's been controlling for the last two decades. You can't take it away now. Um, but the world design and the level design and the way you explore is straight out of Banjo-Kazooie. Like, Odyssey is more like Banjo-Kazooie in level design and, and um, like, tonal design than any Mario game, I would argue. And... Mm. Yeah, I would yeah, agree with that. Um, yeah. If they had made another athletic game instead, I wonder if we'd even have this boom. Right? Because th- we'd only have things like kickstarter games like a hat in time and ukulele to show the other side of mario 64 developing into its own path yeah i i'm I'm just excited is, is all i'm trying to get get through here <laughs> i'm excited for things to learn more than mario um mario is contributing to the plat to the genre what it can and when a game series has is a franchise that really only produces one game every like four years or so for Mario 3d platformers about every three or four years is what they're doing. Um, Mm. If they're the only ones that are doing anything, you're only learning like a little drop more about what you can do with 3d platformers every three or four years. And that has been what's been going on until now. Um, So that is, that's all I wanted to talk about today. Pretty much. I'm just excited that other people are, putting things out there in this genre and that we can learn from it. 
Um, I'm especially excited. I haven't tried it yet. I'm ex especially excited to check out Mulaka, and uh, I I want to see how the the uh, the focus on real life lore has influenced the 3D platformer aspect of this game. That should mm -hmm. be pretty interesting to check out. So that's been our show. Uh, thank you for listening. We have been Mitchell and James, or James and Mitchell, depending on your preference. Uh, listener write-ins. We don't have any today, but we can have some next time if you write into podcast at superjump.online. Uh, you can do that anytime, and we'll read those emails, and you might be read on the show. Every week we try to do an after-school activity. This is something that James and I recommend for the listener because the Super Jump podcast only comes out every two weeks. Uh, you can do a little something in between Super Jump podcasts to uh to wait for the next one so my after school activity recommendation for this week is a video on youtube called the clock diagram it's by a channel called sideways uh sorry i kind of messed that up sideways is what it's called um i had to do a lot of research on some music theory stuff especially in the context of soundtracks for the episode that i put out last week and the sideways channel has been instrumental music pun definitely intended um in in just brushing up on that and and learning tons of new stuff about how soundtracks work all the time the clock diagram specifically is his latest video and it's all about intervals um so if you were interested in what i was talking about last episode about the tritone and how that's an interesting interval you can learn more about intervals and how they work on the clock diagram video James, what is your after-school activity? Very cool. Uh, so mine is a, a YouTube channel um, called Lance McDonald. Uh, I, I kind of randomly came across this when I was watching Bloodborne videos recently. Um, and Lance McDonald has... Um, he mostly talks about Bloodborne. He's got a series called Bloodborne Cut Content. And... I had thought up until now that absolutely everything that could have been said about Bloodborne has been said, um, but this is really fascinating, and I'm I'm still not quite sure how he's actually achieved this. He's he's worked with some people who have essentially they've essentially hacked Bloodborne, um, and again, given that it's on PS4, I don't quite is know how they manage this, stuff? but. Yeah, but it's it seems to be a lot more sophisticated than that because what they've actually been able to do is they've kind of dived into the game code. They've found a number of um, like enemy and boss models um, that are in various states of completion. So some of them, you know, have no textures and can't move. Some of them are fully textured and move. And some of them actually have, you know, some basic AI and collision detection and you can hmm. fight them. Um, they're all at different stages of completion. And what he's been able to do is he's taken these models, he's placed them in different parts of the world to show them off. And and, and again, I, I don't quite know how this actually works, but depending on what parts of the world he places them in and what instructions he gives them, he can kind of elicit different behaviors from them. What's really interesting about it, if you're into Bloodborne, is that he's actually picked up 
certain um they look like alternative designs for some of the bosses that are that are in the game that he actually is able to fight um he's even picked up large amounts of fully voiced dialogue that never made it Whoa. into the game that actually have quite significant implications on the plot or what the plot might have been um it's it's really really clever what he's been able to do and it's really fascinating to see how finished some of these enemies are like there are there are some enemies that he summons into the game and fights that are not only kind of fully textured and animated but they can fight they can be killed um and they have fairly sophisticated attack patterns they can change weapons um it it's really amazing um and so if you're into bloodborne then you are probably into kind of the bloodborne lore and characters and all the rest of it um i i would really recommend this series to fans cuz it's it's really fascinating i've been really been enjoying it i haven't finished it yet i'm probably about three videos in um but there's a hell of a lot of content in there that that is still in the code that never made it into the, the really interesting game. that's uh that's pretty cool our theme song is battle against a clueless foe by shane meza off of the mother four soundtrack uh thank you to shane meza and the mother four team for for putting that under the creative commons license for us thank you very much uh just in case you haven't, please subscribe, and if you can, please review us on iTunes or CastBox. Tell a friend, uh, just listen to this podcast as many times as you can. Anything you want to do for us, that'd be fantastic. So until next time, we'll jump at you next time. Stay super. <laughs>